Welcome to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast, the podcast that dares to think differently. I'm your host, Matthew O'Connell, and in each episode, I explore a topical issue concerning Western Buddhism and spirituality, or whatever you want to call it, with the help of philosophers, religious scholars, and intellectuals from a wide variety of fields, as well as practitioners and teachers, always with the intent to explore new terrain of thought and practice. That's right, we're looking for some kind of revolution here. You can download or play episodes for free at SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and keep up to date with news through Twitter and Facebook. Throw comments at us, criticism, critique, and suggestions for guests and topics to cover. You can also find writings, show notes, and much more at posttraditionalbuddhism.com. The Imperfect Buddha Podcast recommends O'Connell Coaching. Yes, that's still me. If you're looking for support or help exploring practice beyond tradition in a coaching dynamic, or if you're stuck in your practice or have become disillusioned with Buddhism or some other path or practice, or if you're a secular atheist looking for some kind of way forward without religion and ridiculous beliefs, then you might want to get in touch. If any of the issues that come up in our episodes are touching, striking, or important to you, That's also the material I just love to explore. So visit O'ConnellCoaching.com for more information. Most of our episodes are sponsored by bands. Groups from Bristol, my original hometown in England, or Trieste, Italy, where I currently reside. If you like what you hear, then why not support the artist, most of whom can be discovered at Bandcamp. That's all. Enjoy the show. This is a quick introduction to help you on your way through the new season of the Imperfect Buddha podcast. After a year of traipsing the globe with academics in an outrageous attempt to address the anti-intellectualism rife across Buddhism and spirituality more generally, we have landed with both feet on the ground in the terrain of practice. It's a rougher ride that awaits us as the treacherous road ahead features all manner of obstacle. From traditional dogma to rigid expertise. From all-knowing, undisputed heavyweight wisdom carriers to true faith believers and unquestioning disciples, we must avoid such unimaginative foes as we attempt to envision the path ahead anew in ever greater relationship with the world and its great wealth of challenge and opportunity in the 21st century. The challenge for this season is clear, to approach the whole concept of practice afresh, not ignoring the past, not uh, looking down at it along our noses in some snobbish sense of contemporary superiority, but looking at it all in a contemporary lens, and as contemporary a lens as possible, whilst bringing the great wealth of knowledge gained from our academics to bear on the personal, the subjective, the intimate, and the phenomenological. These two areas have often been kept separate, They come together on occasion, but so often with hidden agendas, and we will try to make our own agendas, our own ideology and our own concerns as as explicit as possible, so you know where you stand. Now our first foray into such terrain is carried out in Croatia with a local and a Canadian. Ken McLeod returns to the podcast, as does Hokai Sabul, and together the three of us discussed all manner of topic, from practice, of course, to culture wars from Peter Sloterdijk to Jonathan Haidt, from non-conceptual mind 
to evil, from social duty to other great themes in our time, and all in the way they interrelate with practice. The conversation is divided into two parts. Being recorded live outside a studio, the quality is not the best, but it is perfectly listenable. And I hope that the occasional passing car and echoey sound won't get in the way of your listening pleasure, because the conversation was fruitful and we went into interesting terrain, which I think many listeners are going to find interesting. Some of the themes will inevitably be picked up again with future guests. The end music for this show is provided by The Naturals from Bristol. The track is called 2HGS and is rather wild. Enjoy the episode and let us know what you think at the usual places. So, gentlemen, welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha podcast. One of the things we wanted to do with this, this new season is speak to a variety of different teachers, ex-teachers, practitioners, and explore themes that are important for practitioners in this day and age, both within Buddhism and beyond Buddhism. And... Today's going to be a relatively free-form conversation, so we'll see how it evolves. But there are a couple of themes that I thought we might talk about more explicitly. One of them is uh, practice as a starting point. What do we mean when we talk about practice both for ourselves and as two people here who've, who've both taught Buddhism in the past and, and maybe doing so currently, I'm not sure, you'll, you'll tell me. Uh, but also to talk about uh, this theme of mysticism, which has come up before. And it's a theme that doesn't go away, and it presents us with certain material or ideas or, or approaches to practice which I think are really interesting but it's also got a few problems and I think it would be useful to hash out a couple of those together and I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts and also how you relate to some of those challenges as practitioners yourselves or people who think about big ideas and these ideas in particular. So if you don't mind I'd start off with a question like if you had to define practice as you know it and as you've lived it so far in your lives to somebody who may not be familiar with these kinds of uh, things like Buddhism and spirituality more generally, what, what would be your, your big definition of, of practice or human practice? How does that sound as a starting point? Okay. Well, first, I'm very glad to be back having this conversation with you. Um, I enjoyed our last conversation. And the just when you first came in, we, we had a short uh, a conversation in which uh, Peter Sloterdijk's name came up. Uh, in reference to the book, uh, You Must Change Your Life. One of Sloterdijk's central points in that book is that the differentiator in the 21st century will be between people who have a practice and people who don't have a practice, Mm. or people who do practice and people who don't practice. Here he's talking about practice in a very, very general way. But I think it's a good place to start. Yeah. Uh, and that a practice is a discipline or something you do to consistently refine and improve your ability in some area of life. Mm-hmm. And so it could be athletics, it could be law, it could be medicine, or it could be spiritual practice. It could be magic, it could be poetry, arts, it could be cooking. All of these are domains of practice. And I think that's a good place to start thinking about practice. It is a deliberate effort to improve and refine your ability to exercise in a particular arena. Yeah, perfect. So uh, I would add on that, in in full agreement with what what Ken just said, I would add that we can think of practice as a set of techniques or methods 
on one hand, and on the other hand as as an intentional way of being, as a directed way of being, which which is this discipline in a wider wider, and, and wider I think sense. That, I think that's what Schlotterdijk is, is yes. getting at. Because the world is getting so has become so complex that if you don't engage practice, you simply won't be able to function. Yeah. Even in your own you, area. Yeah, you'll be thrown around. Whether we start from a set of techniques or methods which 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 appear to be at least not explicitly deep, you know, like gardening or cooking, that approach with 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 sufficient uh, you know uh, with sufficient uh, depth of, of dedication and determination discipline and one might even say devotion may end up subsuming your your whole life or or at least providing a model for your whole life from which you find inspiration and, and exemplars how to how to approach uh, other things that are seemingly unrelated and the same things then goes with with meditation which seem to be implicit explicitly deep you know for for one yeah, I'd like to go further if you go far enough we know this largely in the arts and crafts If you go far enough with practice, you end up going beyond the ordinary mind. Okay, but at that point, what are we talking about here with the ordinary mind? Well, what I'm talking about, and this leads us pretty quickly into the direction of mysticism, and I don't know whether you want to go there just yet. The ordinary mind is the way that we ordinarily think, uh, feel, and perceive. And the basic stance of the ordinary mind is that there is an I which thinks, feels, and perceives. Now, whether you look at it from a neurological or a psychological perspective, we know that there isn't any I there. And I think the latest theory of mind is the modular mind, you all these different right, things. Yes. And, and each one of them says, I'm the I. <laughs> and they kind of duke it out and keep grabbing <laughs> for the microphone and so forth. And actually, that, that's a very helpful model from a lot of meditation practice. Uh, it's, it's a model that I used back in the 80s, uh, frequently, and people found it helpful. But there's a knowing which seems to transcend that kind of uh, uh, I-ness. And which people, when people have that experience, it is something which immediately invests their world with a, a completely different sense of me meaning and so it becomes highly valued the downside of that is that it is frequently given such names as reality ultimate truth so forth and so forth you end up in a hierarchical system and then you get this conflict between that way of experiencing versus and i even slipped into it by just using the phrase ordinary mind Mm -hmm. but from my perspective it's a different way And you you hear about this in athletics, for instance, when people say they get into the zone. Uh, like a, in American football, the quarterback drops back into the pocket. And it's only for like five or ten seconds, but he feels like he's got hours to locate the receiver and figure out how to get the ball to him, etc. Uh, you get the same thing in tennis, you get the same thing in basketball, almost any athletic, really good skiers and so forth. Interestingly enough, when you're in the zone, it doesn't actually improve your performance. But your subjective experience is totally different. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, you get the same thing in, in medicine. You probably get it with surgeons. Uh, you certainly get it with artists. Yeah. And, and so they move into a different way of experiencing, which most people who experience it 
value very, very highly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because in a sense, you know, the spiritual path is an apprenticeship to refining your capacity to know that experience. Yes. And to function from that experience. Right. Yeah. And, and mm. that last point is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Because many people can, can find that experience, yeah. but then refuse to function from it. Because it's so... Um, it's a game changer. It, it's a game changer because you cannot rely on your conditioned personality to function right. from it. Right. Which brings up some interesting <laughs> challenges. <laughs> can I go back to, to a point Ken made about, about not improving performance? Yeah. Which is kind of true, but it does, uh, that mode of functioning does make sure the, the, uh, the most frequent blocks to your available optimal performance do not arise. Yes, that's true. So, yes. so it, it doesn't move what you can do, but it, it, it makes it more likely that you will be able to do what you can do. Yes, that, that, that's a very you, good way to put it. Yes, okay. I think that's a very good way to put it. Because then there would be yeah. no point in <laughs> Well, yeah. th- that's a whole other thing. Th- yeah, there, there's another point. Yeah, okay. <laughs> We're finished now. <laughs> You'll see how we navigate these, these side routes today. Yeah. 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 Three points. One is... Um, one of the things that I want us to get onto afterwards about mysticism, I think one of the problems is that there's this conflation between descriptions of reality, right, and then these practices is working on our subjective experience. So when you talk about yes, discovering yes. non-ordinary non mind, too many people suddenly say, I think as you mentioned before, oh, that means the whole universe is exactly this way. And, and so a lot of the discounting that's, say, from different intellectual or more rational traditions of mysticism is that they see... They're not able to separate out those two things either. So we end up having these big ontological discussions about what is the phenomenology of experience. Before we get to that, though, and you'll see the connection here, when you were speaking before, two thoughts came to mind. One of them was apprenticeship, which is something we've spoken about before as well. Um, And the other one is that book, which you both know very well, which I never completed, which is, I think the name is How to Cook Your Life. Ah, by uh, Uchiyama. Yeah, which resonated with the, the, the mention of cooking. Have, you have to read it three or four times. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it's... It's deceptively about nothing. <laughs> well, it's actually a commentary on the four immeasurables. Okay. But I didn't get that until I read it the third time. Mm. I went, and I think if you're familiar with Zen, you probably get it faster. I'm going, oh... This is what he's talking about. And it's, fa- and it's mm-hmm. fascinating. I, I found it a very rich book. Yeah. And, I, and I've, I've actually read it sentence by sentence in individual sessions with students several times. Mm. Wow, that's commitment. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, it, it's, it, I had them read it. And, yeah. they would, and they'd come back and then we'd go through what they'd read. Yeah, yeah. Literally, sentence by sentence. Wow. Well, well, we do that with red writing quotes, don't we? <laughs> Andante in Italy. Yes. You know? And uh, yeah, Shakespeare in the UK. And you find something upon a third or fourth reading. Right. Yeah. You know, if you stick it out. <laughs> yeah. So um if we if we continue with this idea of practice then, you know, moving on from moving on and with Slotterdike, um how would you view then the relationship between practice as he's described it? And you unifying that with the idea of spirituality, a problematic term, and maybe we can define it. And being an apprentice, not just to a teacher, but that kind of practice. Okay, I'm going to ask you to repeat your question. Yeah, I'm, I'm layering up my questions today. That's, 
It's Saturday morning and that's the mood I'm in. Three or four questions. Yeah. There. All right, let's start off, let's strip it down to the basics. Can we define spirituality or a spiritual path? That's, no. No. All right, that's uh, a question. Uh, uh, well, the, the reason is, when we use the word spiritual, what are we referring to? I, I had this conversation with Stephen Batchelor just before I came here. Oh, okay, so it's fresh. This actually touches on mysticism as well. Mm. Stephen was, was saying that he really doesn't like the word spiritual, but he finds himself using it. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, I, and for the last couple of years, I have been in conversations I'm having with uh, colleagues, other teachers, experienced teachers, I've been quietly encouraging them to talk about Buddhist practice in terms of mysticism. And almost always, when I suggested this with Stephen and Martine, when I was visiting them, and Martine just didn't, just started tearing apart the word mysticism. And that's the first reaction I get. Mm. They say, well, we can't use mysticism because this. And they have a lot of very good reasons. The yeah. word is highly problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But then, not infrequently, when I see them a year or two later, and not necessarily Stephen Martine, but other other. You know, I find that they're using it. <laughs> Why? Because it's because it's useful. Now, I find the word spiritual, but I also find the word mysticism useful right now mm. because it immediately distinguishes what I'm trying to talk about with people from the utilitarian and instrumentalist approach that we have pervading a lot of what passes for Buddhist teaching these days. Mm-hmm. So it's a way of saying it's not that. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and, and when you use the word mysticism, very few people say, oh, how can I use mysticism to make my life better? Yeah. Because there's something about that word, the way it works in English, which says, no, it's not about that. It's about something else. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring up this word spiritual, because this goes back to our email exchange. You know, through the 90s and the early 2000s, you had this phrase going around a lot, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm spiritual, but not, uh, not religious. A lot of what's going on, particularly in American Buddhist circles, is that the institutions are becoming religious, but not spiritual. Mm-hmm. That is, they're becoming less and less about this quality that we're trying to talk about right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting observation. It's, it's odd. Yeah. It's that, I think it's reflective of the sort of conservative strain that we're seeing emerging within the political sphere at the moment on the left, and the right, we were talking a little bit about this before, and you were saying, you know, many people on the left seem to be ending up on the right, well, in a sense. Conservative or puritanical? Yeah, a bit of both, probably. But I think the conservative strain is that, that kind of desire to preserve something, to hold on to something, to grab at something that's reliable. I think, I think it's far more materialistic than that. You think? That, that strain, yes, I think, yeah. I, I, think, I think the reason it's religious and not spiritual is because it's very heavily based in materialism. Okay. And I don't mean materialism as in the acquisition of wealth, but materialism as the view that all, all there is is matter. Okay, okay. All right, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which perhaps explains why there's this sort of this sense of a life and death battle over who gets to possess and state what. You know, in terms of language, in terms of boundaries, in terms of group identities. And this goes straight to Uchiyama. Because one of the first things that Uchiyama does in How to Cook Your Life mm. is distinguish between 
between the world in which things can be exchanged mm. and the world in which things cannot be exchanged. For instance, if you have a glass of water, then you can share that glass of water with me. I can have part of it, you can have part of it, you know. And we can trade water and we trade all kinds of things. But if I have a taste of a strawberry pie, I cannot possibly share that experience with it. There is no way. So there's these two very different worlds. And if you only see the world in materialist terms, you are forgetting about the world that cannot be shared. And I would say further on, the world of the spirit is concerned with the world that cannot be shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, which leads us in that direction towards mysticism. Yeah, well, if we, we're talking about terms right now, right? And uh, one particular, but yeah, I would, I would kind of avoid talking just why, why I, I don't have a problem with mysticism. I, I know what the problems are. Yeah. I, I've, you know, I, I've, I've read my homework and I know where the, 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 the term becomes a problem and how it has been misused or abused and how it's mostly used as an offensive term these days. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's, it's not a new thing. It has been going on for a while. Well, that's mysticism, you know. Or, but mystic is almost never used as an offensive term, interestingly enough. No. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia was referred by his, his superior officer well, as, as a mystic. Yeah. <laughs> coming, from soldiers, <laughs> coming from soldiers, it would be like an SOB or something. Yeah. But, but uh, that's, yeah, that's quite an interesting thing to happen, though, isn't it? Well, it's, it's almost a compliment. Almost a compliment, yeah. So, but, but I will talk about a little bit about terms in general. Yeah. Uh, it's, it, one approach is to point out what the term uh, you know, signifies, stands mm-hmm. for, or refers to, right? Mm-hmm. And another approach is just to just to elegantly, elegantly circumcise it and and say what it doesn't mean. So, but by saying what something isn't, uh, we're not being avoidant or anything, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, but we're we're basically allowing for anyone who would who would approach a, a particular notion mm-hmm. to, uh, to 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 define it for themselves. You know, based on some, how should I say, not concrete, but based on some substantial experience or or, or interaction with a particular kind of material or relate a relationship to life, etc. The, the method is somewhat superior, especially with problematic terms, to say what we don't mean by it, to leave the kind of uh, uh, the, the actual uh, referent point of the term open and empty, not to say it doesn't mean anything, <laughs> you know. But actually, to to leave it kind of open enough uh, to make it possible for every person to not approach it as a as a prescribed or as a as a, as a rigidly defined denominator, mm-hmm. but as as a possible direction of conceptually engaging with something that that is that is stubbornly resistant to conceptual uh, categorization. Yeah, uh, to extend what. Uh, Hokai saying there, it's the difference between defining a field and say, okay, walk into this field, uh, and this field is here's a fence, and if it's outside that fence, it's not the field. Yeah, and say so, so that's it. So you're defining it by what it what it isn't, what it is, as opposed to saying, you know, this is a field. Yeah, 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 and you're also just being honest. I think. 
intellectually, if I can bring that back in, about terms, right, which is what we do in any serious discussion. You know, it's not that the word is taboo or has to be kept out of the discussion. It's just, what do we mean? That's where the conversation begins, right? Which is what we're doing right here now. Um, so I like that. I like what you had to say about it being open as well for people to find their own relationship with the term as well. Sure. Yeah. The other thing as well I think that's always useful is is to take on board the homework as you described it. Because I think one of the problems is we want to avoid reproducing the same failings of our forebears. It's like actually study, you know, engage a bit. What does it mean? Why was mysticism problematic as a term? And therefore the term is, as you said, a signifier. But what's interesting about learning about why that was problematic is that it can help us as well to to not fall into some of the, the pitfalls on the way. Well, if, if I may jump jump there to, to, to another point, uh, mysticism exists in, in two very different ways, which makes it a particular term. It, it exists as a cultural term, mm-hmm. or you may say a philosophical scholarly term and, and the term of uh, disagreements, etc. Mm-hmm. But it exists also as a technical term. Okay. Okay. So it's it's it exists also as an insider term of which those who don't partake know nothing, and it's not an elitist stance. Of course, there's a mystical elite, just as there is a basketball elite, just as there is a table tennis elite, a snooker elite, and a cooking elite. Uh, we, we we all agree with that perfectly. Mm-hmm. But the, the terms used by the cooks, the terms used by the snooker players, are poorly understood by scholars of of these disciplines. And most experts are retired uh, snooker masters or retired chefs mm. who would comment on, on what the current you know masters of the discipline or practitioners of the discipline are trying to do, right? So very often mysticism is one of those things that, that was derailed from its field of expertise and was commented upon by all sorts of characters who didn't like it for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. If we go back to people who deal with mysticism but who are at home, in the field, then they don't use the, the term as a debating term or something like that. They, they use it when it's useful, and very often they stop using it when it's not. They don't make a big fuss of it. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Just like the word dharma, I mean, you know, means ten things according to the scholastic categorization, but I, I, I doubt it if, if anyone is aware of those ten meanings when they use them. Mm-hmm. Plus, it makes me think as well that you know a term like spiritual and, and mysticism are not only problematic for historical reasons; they also they also come up against some of the taboos of our time, right? Oh, Which is this insider outsider divide, expertise, lack of expertise, and this kind of this weird um, well, desire for some kind of absolute egalitarianism. Yeah, yeah, but it's not a problem in cooking, as I said. No, no, in fact, and that's interesting, right? But we don't make that distinction that you've no just one, made. No one would pretend to be able to cook for 50 people and do a good job. Well, actually, no, this this is a point. One of the big mistakes that's being made around this egalitarianism is it's a reaction to hierarchies of dominance. But in the process, they're eliminating hierarchies of competence. Right, which is a point Jordan Peterson would make. Yes, and and we know the result of that experiment because that's precisely what happened in the Cultural Revolution and 30 to 40 million people died of starvation. That's what happens when you get rid of... when in your quest to get rid of hierarchies of dominance, you get rid of hierarchies of competence. You, you produce chaos and, and mass, mass problems. And one of the things that... I'm trying to say this politely... It is unwise not to respect hierarchies of competence. Mm. 
Yeah. It's also a reaction politically against the, the, the failing of expertise. I don't want to go too far down that yeah, road. Yes, yes. Uh, right? Yeah. It's, and instead of it bringing up a new kind of challenge, which would be how do we relate to expertise and how do we relate to people that possess that expertise in a way that's more balanced, they've gone to the opposite extreme, right? Let's get rid of the experts because yeah, you know, well, both your average right. man knows everything somehow. Both magically. in the political and the religious arena, the experts have betrayed the hoi yeah. polloi. And it's well, happened for sure, yeah. Yeah. But the reaction, the consequence of that has, has not been a good one, which yeah. is this strange idea that's... It's like that book that came out a few years back, which was frustrating, The Wisdom of Crowds. I don't know if you remember hearing yes. about that one. I, I remember it. Yeah, and, and yeah. I, this came out of the internet boom. This is the postmodern fallacy. Postmodernism is useful in to the extent that it allows structures which had never been questioned to be questioned. But then the where people go from there is often has often been then we should do without structures. And no, that's that, that doesn't work at all because nature, you know, let alone human beings, always build structures. I mean the tree is a structure so the idea that we could do without structures is a little bit unrealistic again we have to differentiate between functional structures and structures that that are that are developed for purposes of domination and control and yeah. And, yeah. and sub sub what's the word suppression suppression, suppression. Yeah. yeah yes but, but all of those but those structures inevitably will do those things and we accept those things because in the bigger picture it actually improves functioning for everybody involved. But we can't get away from the fact that some structures are going to exclude. I mean, the first point that Idris Shah makes in his uh, book, Knowing how to, uh, Learning How to Learn, or Knowing How to Know, I can't remember which one, is that all learning is based on inclusion and exclusion. If you're going to learn Spanish, you are going to put aside your Sanskrit text because mm-hmm. it's not going to help you learn Spanish. So in any domain of learning, any domain of practice, you are going to include certain things and exclude. The idea that you want should include everything is a rather childish dream. Unless empty space meets empty space, there will be structure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like we're still, we're still struggling with idealism, basically, just taking different forms. We want things I, to I be think, this. Yes, yes. And there's a lack of, um, a lack of engaged thought but also experiential engagement with some of these big ideas which are being bandied about as if they're obvious. The other failing of the left has been this sort of moral superiority, which means they're often not willing to question their own assumptions and beliefs. But that would be off topic. I don't think that is exclusive to the left. No, no. <laughs> but it's been obvious on the right for a long time. That would be the point. You know, the right has been vilified for a very long time because their failings are so transparent. It's true in Italy, it's true in America... It's true in the UK. Well, the right uh, wear their heart on their sleeve. Right. So it's easier to notice their failings. <laughs> yeah. The left is more devious. Mm. So saying that as a leftist myself. Oh, me too. Yeah. Uh, the left tends to be more devious about their faults and, and virtues. Yeah. yeah, I think they're often just plain blind to them, to be honest. But uh, one, one interesting thing that we might pick up on so we don't end up going too far down that road is is the idea of apprenticeship yeah, and the fact that it is, um, it's part of this discussion we're having. It's almost taboo as well now. It's interesting how many European cultures are giving up their, their educational apprenticeships as well for university degrees. Yeah. Because 
That is one of the problems in American society. Mm. It's all co college-oriented, and uh, and there's the very beginning of bringing back some apprenticeship, right? Because it, in certain areas, it is much the better system to train people. Mm. But if we're going to talk about apprenticeship, then necessarily we are talking about hierarchies of competence. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it, because some people have been doing this for 20 years, and so you go and you apprentice yourself to such a person, and you learn how things are done. Mm -hmm. And you know, if you take uh, making sushi, for instance, mm -hmm. or, or in the old masters, learning how to paint, mm -hmm. when you apprenticed as a sushi, uh, apprentice sushi chef, you don't pick up a knife for three years. You wash dishes, you do this. But you're hanging around these people who are making sushi. And the what happens apparently is that because you're around them, the way that they handle their knife, you absorb through your body. Mm. So when you actually pick up a knife, your body already knows what to do. Mm. And the same thing with the masters. You just clean brushes and cleaned up paint and things like that. But you're around these people watching them, how they moved. I was reading a bit about uh, Buddy Guy, the blues singer. Mm. He never took any music lessons. Mm. What he would do is he, we would go to the jet when he moved to Chicago, uh, out of the south. He would go, he'd sit in front and just watch these people to see how they did what they did. Mm. And when I was learning in the training for the three-year retreat, we were trained in the Tibetan musical instruments. One of them is a jelling, which is like a primitive oboe. And we were taught one tune that was getting close, and I just didn't want to be playing one tune for seven years or three years. So I went to one of the people who knew how to play jowling this particular instrument and said, you know, can you teach me another tune? So we went off somewhere. He taught me how to play another tune. But the very last thing he did, when I more or less got it, is that he took my arm, and then he played the tune on my arm. Mm. And I was how how neat he was putting the tune into my body <laughs> and you know and we've lost touch with that that, that kind of thing I mean the only area where this really is valued is in, is in athletics mm -hmm. because and to a certain extent in music yeah dance of course mm -hmm. but yeah. if there isn't an explicit uh, physical learning th process th th yeah. physical involvement the value of learning through the body Mm -hmm. and, which is a lot of what happens in apprenticeship is just isn't appreciated yeah yeah there's a loss of physicality and I think that goes again with the, the times we live in where everybody's absorbed by this technological sphere and the digital sphere there's a lot of general disassociation and detachment from the body taking place from the somatic process from the somatic process of, of yeah. becoming accustomed with something even, un even unconsciously yeah, and yeah absolutely and, and it ends up with such absurdities as uh uh, Ray Kurzweil's The Singularity. Right, yes. Yeah, you, know, just, you can't have a disembodied. So they, there's some... They recently did some experiments with deca decapitated pigs where they seem to be able... The head to, seems to live for a while. Yeah. yeah. Odd business. And what a strange fantasy to, to entertain. The Singularity. The Russians did that with the dog head in, in the 60s. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, a funny business. So we've actually picked up a lot of themes, okay. and it's nice to bring them back to to, the, to a sort of straight direction. 
Um, a lot of these things we've been mentioning actually present themselves as challenges to the practicing life, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Both from playing around with concepts and whether they become taboo and whether people will talk about them or not. Um, you know, going on one side of the linguistic divide, so I won't use mysticism, also means they're losing and excluding something, mm-hmm. but also asserting or affirming something else they've got, mm-hmm. right? Um, this unwillingness, perhaps, to learn physical skills or to commit to things. I think one of the big challenges that, that comes up collectively, in a sense, is commitment more generally. I see it in the young people I teach and, and, and the kind of discourse that comes up. What are people willing to commit to? I think um, you might have phrased this a couple of years ago in a conversation we had as what would people be willing to die for? Yeah. You know, which is kind of the same thing. Yeah. And I think we live in an age in which a practice either produces instant results or fits the momentary desire or it's something that so many people are just not willing to commit to anymore. And so even some of the discourse around Buddhism, which becomes mindfulness, which becomes you will get results in 10 days, etc., etc., it's created a kind of interesting um, challenge, I think, to the age we live in, in, in which people who, who have this idea of depth or profundity or more long-term, gradual or somatic transformation... Everything becomes a cost-benefit analysis. Exactly. And it's utilitarian again. Yeah. Well, that's moving into the transactional framework. Yeah. But I think, yeah. I think there's another uh, challenge here. Well, the question, though, yeah, okay. just to tie that up, is you know, how... As a practice, as practicing people, which we all of us are, you know, how do you relate to all that as a practitioner, and how do you relate to that in practicing, and how it comes up? Because well, I see this stuff coming up in the personal, right, as well as the social. I mean, it's a very rich question. I think that uh, where I'll go first with it is to introduce the notion of a calling. I've been messing around with the, the idea of motivation, and, which links up with uh, commitment, of course. And in the Tibetan tradition, as I'm sure both of you know, we have the famous or infamous four thoughts to turn the mind, yeah. which are usually presented as motivational material. They're described as what prepares you to do meditation practice. And I think that is a more accurate description than saying that they're motivational material. Because when I look back on my own training and practice, uh, well, I did a lot of contemplation of the four thoughts which turned to mind, you know, the precious human birth, death and impermanence, the shortcomings of samsara, the workings of karma. And in my case, I cannot honestly say they affected my motivation or commitment (laughs) at all. (laughs) They did change the way that I look at things. And one of the big changes, which I noticed uh, many, many years later, is that because of all of the work on impermanence, when death happened unexpectedly, it was no longer a surprise. It didn't, or rather, it didn't affect my worldview. And I think that's why untimely death is so hard for people because it shatters their worldview. Good people don't die early, things like that. But in terms of what actually drew me to or sustained me in the spiritual spiritual practice, it was none of that material. And in the course of my practice, like I think most practitioners, I encountered a lot of difficulty, both physical and emotional. 
And many people have asked me from time to time, why, why did you keep going? And I spent a great deal of time examining myself for some kind of psychopathology or psychoanalytic or psychodynamic framework which would explain. I couldn't find it. Yeah, there must be something wrong with you, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know, something out of balance, some compensatory <laughs> material, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, something from childhood, certainly. Pardon? <laughs> something from childhood. Well, you know, whatever. And I just couldn't find it. And so, little by little, and this is, a, this is something I did over years. It wasn't a one-shot mm-hmm. examination. Mm-hmm. But coming back to it again, and eventually... I came, no, this is something I just had to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could point me in that direction and I would go, yes, and then come back in this one. I, and I was just going to do it. And then I realized that was, you know, it was like Wilkie's advice to a young poet. You know, only become a poet if in the still hours of the morning, morning, like 3 or 4 a.m., when your mind is quiet, you wake up and you realize that this is just something you have to do in your life. Your, your mm-hmm. life isn't isn't going to be your life if you don't do it. Yeah. And so my personal feeling is that in, in terms of mysticism and uh, deep spiritual work, that something along those lines has to be operating in the person. You may have some other ideas. Yes, on the one hand, so on, on the one hand it's, it's, it's uh, only do it if you, if you must, right? <laughs> There's this this piece of advice, which is very useful, only do it if you must. But on the other hand, don't ignore that calling also. And especially once you start it on whatever we call it, the path or a, or a practice or a, or, a, or a lifelong discipline, don't let it slip slip away. Mm. Yeah. Because, because it, it, it remains the ultimate arbiter of what's genuine and what's contrived mm-hmm. in your in your. In your in your approach to practice and in the way you you bring bring your life to practice, a calling is a perfect word. Uh, uh, and and uh, in for, from my own you know uh, learning and study, the the Chinese and Japanese uh, traditions use use the the notion of the seeking mind, right? Yes, Which I think it's a bit of a per- uh, what was that phrase that Suzuki Roshi uses? The firm way seeking mind. firm way seeking mind. Yeah, that. Hmm. That's why I said the ultimate arbiter. Yeah, which you you pointed out to me is a synonym for bodhicitta. Yes, in in in, mm-hmm. in the Japanese Vajrayana, that's the, the two the two kinds of bodhicitta are called the the seeking and the being sought, or mm-hmm. the seeking one and the and the sought after one. So that's like <laughs> the equivalent of of personal and, and transcendental or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, between the uh, oh, that, that sounds very Sufi like lover and beloved yeah, yeah. In, in the Sufi tradition yeah, yeah exactly but it's, it's richer yeah. I find that more interesting once you add that element yes but that, that's why I wanted once to say you, that, once, that you add, once you add that element in I find it more interesting oh okay I, I, I think that the seeking uh, t- translation is is, uh, is is one one definite alternative but the other one is the yearning mind yes which, which approaches the notion of a calling yeah. because that calling is irrational first of all Yes, but let's make clear that irrational means not rational. Yes. It doesn't mean, it doesn't <laughs> well, mean crazy. You have to be so careful. <laughs> Which is good. It's good. Yeah. Yes, yeah. okay. So it's irrational in, in the sense that it's, it's highly unreasonable. 
and it's it's very often not really good for you in in, in uh, conventional uh, terms. Uh, uh, uh. It 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 disregards your 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 health at times. It mm-hmm. disregards the balance in your everyday life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it must be obeyed. That kind of thing. But but then again, I'm not talking about a pathological uh, compulsion to go this this or no, that, this way. And, and that's a very there's, there's an important difference. Yes. Yeah. Which is why it's good to have an apprenticeship context. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Because sometimes on your own, you're just not sure. Uh, very often. Because it, it borders on it borders on crazy being yeah. irrational. Yeah. Uh, especially if you're not experienced in yeah. in distinguishing. Matthew, you're absolutely right. That is one of the very important aspects of apprenticeship is that the compulsion to, through through the activity of the. Pres- Apprenticeship, that compulsive quality is weeded out. Yeah, yeah. And so if you, you know, and you lose that. So a compulsive quality, speaking psycho- psychologically now, is almost always a compensatory mechanism yeah. of some kind. It's an obsession. Yeah. And and so a a good journeyman or a good master is going to cultivate the apprentice and dissolve that particular component. So that there is a healthy motivation, and that only comes through long-term exposure—you know, exposure, not long-term necessarily, but exposure over a period of time and human interaction, which is—you don't really get that through the ordinary college education, at least not anymore. It's the essential part of cultivation. Yeah. Yeah. Cultivating the the, the calling calling element itself. I mean, this yeah. this puts Purifying us in, it, you know. Yeah. This puts us into another area, which is uh, I, I've come across in how people are approaching Buddhist practice. Because I've stopped teaching, the kind of people I have uh, I, I found that reach out to connect with me are not mainstream practitioners. These are you know, these are people operating at the margins, at the edge. Yeah, and. What frequently comes up is do it yourself. Mm. And one of the questions that has been thrown at me is how do you do do it yourself, Adriana? It's just email with it going, oh, yeah. It's a very interesting question when you're coming from such a lineage uh, uh, based model as the Tibetan tradition. Yeah. And, but your point about apprenticeship here, I think, uh, applies very, very strongly is that there are things that you can do by it by yourself but there's another whole component as Hokai was just saying which cannot be done by yourself and actually requires that human interaction and I, I think one of the challenges in being a teacher today and in, in being a, 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 a practitioner or practicing whatever term you want to use of being a student is to creating the conditions where you can actually have that kind of human connection so that the compulsive or problematic qualities of motivation get burned out or whatever metaphor or weeded out, out, or weeded yeah, out yeah, whatever yeah. metaphor we want to use for that so that there's a healthy balanced motivation mm-hmm. which which can carry the person and, and mature into the kind of commitment that I think you're leading up to. Yeah, another word I, I generally use, although again it's a problematic term, <laughs> is desire, right? Which would be something like Lacan would, would say. And Zizek, since we talked about him earlier, is the fact that one of the big problems with much of the presentation of earlier forms of Buddhism, or this Protestant Buddhism, is anti-desire. And in fact, that desire is very often the calling, which is a word I wouldn't necessarily use. But I like that idea of desire because it's so human and it's so non-negotiable. It's there. 
And Buddhism in general does have a problematic relationship with it, but that desire is that compulsion to be part of something, and it is irrational very often in terms of it's not premeditated, right? Well, it doesn't come from the conceptual mind. Okay, it come, who knows where it comes from? Exactly. I mean, that's yeah. Maybe that's a good place for us to segue off to mysticism, right? Well, <laughs> where the hell does any of that stuff come from? <laughs> well, here... Maybe that doesn't matter, but... Yeah. Well, here, here is where uh, something I, I put in one of our email exchanges. Increasingly, I've been thinking that we'd be much better off if we moved mystical practice from the domain of religion into the domain of the arts. Right. Because it is a... It's, I'm not sure you can call it an art, but I, I think that some of the ways that we think about the arts are more applicable to mysticism than ways we think about religion. Now, Yuval Harari's 21 Lessons for the 21st century actually touches on this. And mm. I was very, very happy to see it. Uh, in his words, he says, the cosmic mystery does not give two hoots about the social order. And struggling to change or working to change the social order is not going to lead you to the cosmic mystery. <laughs> it's kind of refreshing because I think those have become completed in a lot of people's minds which is a kind of naive utopian thinking. So I'm going to say that, you know, I have a number of definitions of mysticism, but one is it's an intense interest to engage and possibly live out of the cosmic mystery. Okay. Uh, Well, yeah, I have nothing to to add here. Well, how about we head off a little bit further into this idea of practice and apprenticeship as art? Because in a sense, I mean, um, I was talking with Ken beforehand how yesterday I had a conversation um, for the podcast with um, a woman called Cleo Kearns and her main interest is ritual and we would, and she's an academic and a practitioner uh, we were talking about the function of ritual and one of the big things that came up in that discussion was the fact that ritual is you know it's performative right yeah we're, we're, we're talking about sacred ritual right not, yes. not about uh, no no we're talking about religious ritual fans and no yeah. no no yeah. and in fact we, we talked very briefly about that but she's primarily interested in the role of ritual in, within religion well ritual is just art put to to to, to a particular use yeah yeah it's the art of movement it's yeah. the art of uh, what, what do you say announcing or or uh, enunciating enunciating something yeah mm-hmm. producing sound uh, yeah. that that has or doesn't have a meaning and it's the art of of uh, creating an internal representation uh, and and that all combined structured in a particular way that has certain resonances mm-hmm. that 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 forces you to confront a particular uh, internal you know uh, obstacles or, or resistances mm-hmm. and that opens up possibilities yeah that that's what we mean by ritual. So it's it's just another word for organized practice, where more than just attention is 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 used to, yeah, to yeah. to to bring together the, the 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 social order in you with the cosmic mystery <laughs> <laughs> to see what happens in that encounter. Yeah, but very quickly, hopefully, you are able to outgrow the the some of the conditionings, mm-hmm. and, and that's where you hit more primitive, more primitive material, more yeah. primitive conditioning. And that's where ritual becomes a form of meditation, yeah. or, or even or even fades into mm. uh, a proper meditation, which is usually represented as something where you just uh, rest and and, mm-hmm. and another another form of ritual that we were talking about together yesterday was the fact that also ritual uh, can provide a disruption 
to like the normal experience of selfhood, um, especially ritual that's practiced in groups. It's a form of enactment. Yeah. And the other thing that I liked about what she said, which relates to what we were saying before, is that uh, ritual, in a sense, is unreasonable often, in that it doesn't have that utilitarian objective. And highly symbolic. And therefore, it can provide a means to kind of disrupt some of these these ideas of selfhood, both individually but also collectively. It creates so a space it, in which you can step out of those things. Right. Yeah. And it, it's interesting. The habitual roles, right? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting how much resistance there is to ritual, though, also amongst contemporary Buddhists. You know, I've experienced it myself. Mindfulness as an ideal is the fact that I can strip away everything, get a really clean, straight, uncomplicated practice which will take me straight to the goods without disrupting my experience of self and often. I was trained very deeply in ritual. I came to respect it, really appreciate its power. And at the same time, I know this resistance to ritual of which you speak. And one of the aspects of my own teaching career is that I did not teach very much ritual because I really didn't know how. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did use rituals in various places, but I, I, I think that in a, certain, in a very definite way, I shortchanged my students on, ritual, uh, on their relationship with ritual. And when I look at myself, I would say it comes out of my own conditioning. I was raised as Protestant mm-hmm. all of that. Um, part of that is that Formal Tibetan rituals are very rich, very complex. I didn't know how to translate them in a way that they yeah. didn't seem trite. Yeah. A few of them I was able to do, and they were quite... Important. Yeah. Even trite or, or esoteric, you know, impenetrable. Impenetrable, yeah. yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was a challenge for me. But I'd like to go in a slightly different direction with this art and uh, putting the mystical, the spiritual, and the domain of art. When I look at how say, musicians train. They know a hell of a lot more about renunciation and commitment than most spiritual practitioners. (laughs) I'm just going to throw that out there. (laughs) There's the pain aspect, for example, right? Well, there's... They give up up their life. They practice. Sleep, meals, no problem. There's there's a commitment Mm. there. Uh, They're going to deform their body. Dancers particularly. Yeah. There's a willingness to accept the non-negotiables in a way that... Yeah, and this, yeah. this goes yeah. straight back to your theme That's of practice the price, with Slaughterbike. Right? But it's something you say often, there's a price to pay, right? Well, that, no, even, that, even, even with basic clarity, there's a price to pay. Yes. So I think part of the challenge here is people want to have their cake and eat it. Like a good consumer, because again, that's another layer of this. Well, you're absolutely right, yeah. And the, the positive side of that, though, which just comes to me now, is it's right that we live in a culture which does ask, what are the consequences? What do I get? I don't think that's necessarily so problematic in this day and age. You know, what am I getting into? But then the problem is, is, is it then becomes a form of negotiation in which the buyer has the power. And they can't see how they buyer need to give up more than just the money they're going to invest. Buyer beware. Buyer what? Buyer beware. Beware. Right. Yeah. Well, there... You remind me of a colleague of mine who we were at Rebuchet's funeral. And he and I were talking, and this person came in all enthusiastic about doing the three year retreat. And my friend said in French, uh, You have to pay, but you may not get anything. <laughs> <laughs> you try, try selling that one at the Apple store. <laughs> well, but, but it speaks to. 
we have this transactional mindset, utilitarian, whatever you want to call it, in which, and this is what has corrupted American education. Mm-hmm. I, I pay for my, co- I, I pay the college, university for uh, X amount of money, and I get an education. I pay X amount of dollars into the healthcare system. I get good health. What this transactional framework does, it, it removes the onus on the individual to participate. And yep. that I see as a big problem. And also to know there are no warrants. There are no warrants. Guarantees. guarantees. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. You may uh, get perfect medical care, but that doesn't mean you, you'll, you'll get to live. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you move it from a transactional relationship, and this is a framework I use, into a shared aim relationship where you and your teacher are working together to grow something in you. Mm. Now... You have to be an active participant. And so the commitment comes from that. The willing to endure difficulties and challenges comes from that. Mm. And how that willingness is ignited in the individual, this is something I've talked about with a number of people. I think the four measurables play a crucial role here in that If you have been on the receiving end of equanimity, i.e. you have experienced doing something and not being judged for it. You're talking about the formative years, right? Yeah, the formative years. That that allows you to move in certain ways. Mm-hmm. If you have been on the receiving end of caring with no expectation of reward, mm-hmm. then, then you know how to love. Mm-hmm. If somebody has been with you when you've been in pain and they've just been with you, then you know something about compassion. And when your successes have been celebrated by the people around you, you know something about joy. These are incredibly important. Yeah. Yeah. These are like seeds. Exactly. That then yes. grow in you mm-hmm. into something potentially much, mm-hmm. much bigger. Mm-hmm. You seem thoughtful. Yeah. Well, you know, having gone through three months of... Uh, very bad health and seeing my wife <laughs> be there with me through it in thick and thin it's uh, there you go that's that's the context that's wonderful yeah and uh in fact the, the big it was fascinating to be at the, the lowest point and uh to experience profound gratitude not just towards her but just the care yes you know and it's a reminder that um an apprenticeship i think to life in a sense is And if somebody is there to, to help you through those moments, it's an apprenticeship through profound and meaningful experiences which shake you. Yes. You know, and in fact, my view in terms of both somebody who teaches in different contexts, not necessarily in the spiritual context, although I don't see a huge distinction always, is, is a, a lot of people in this day and age that are missing opportunities to be taken over by experience in a way that empowers and liberates and transforms. My view of of spiritual practice has often been that distinction. Spiritual practice actively can seek to give that or to provide a context for that to, to take place. And I keep coming back to this word commitment because I see both in the different age groups I teach and in people around me that in these frenetic times are creating a, a practice context in which people are so caught up by so many things that the moments and the spaces in which there's, there's a descent or a drop into something radically destabilizing but in a way that empowers or liberates or transforms it's becoming harder to achieve to some degree because the people are are kept distracted i mean we live in 
the attention economy. Right. Our engagement with all of our myriad devices is various corporations getting our attention and selling it to somebody else. And I hadn't thought of it until you just mentioned it now, but that actually leaves less attention to do exactly what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Because our attention is always leaking off here, and it's primarily reactive, unstable attention. Yeah. Yeah, And and, and it is only through such disciplines as as the arts, to a certain extent athletics, uh, or spiritual practice, that you develop a relationship with the stable, consistent attention that leads to the kinds of things you're talking about, yeah. Which is that word commitment again. Exactly. You know? It seems to be in short supply in this day and age. Well, I, I would go further. I would say it's being actively undermined. Yeah, I think you could probably say that. But again, if we look... It is seen as something retrograde, you know? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. But I think you see it... it it's so diffused across society, from politics to the economy, to education, to familial relationships, that, you know, it seems to be the product of history, right? It seems to be an an emergence of the consequences of these choices we've made over the last 100, 200 years. And so, although certainly there are these corporations who are actively doing specific things, I think, I tend to avoid conspiracy theories, you know? I just think it's like democracy is a three-year project. There's no vision. There's no commitment. It's systems theory rather than conspiracy theory. All right. Yeah. But I, I think those people themselves are so taken up by the compulsion of history. Well, you know, the Facebook executives will refuse to... Oh, you know, yeah. They, they ban their children. Yeah. Well, they their you, children to engage in Facebook. Yeah. yeah. Did, I don't know if you heard any of the interviews with, uh, what's his name, that Jack, the CEO of Twitter. Yes. He's been doing the rounds. I remember, I didn't listen to any of it. I didn't, I didn't want to, but I just looked at the pictures of him in Joe Rogan's studio. And I saw another one where he was doing another one. And he looks utterly bewildered. He looks like he's completely out of his depth. He doesn't seem to me somebody who's got this big intent, I'm going to do this. He looks like he's consumed by the moment we live in, and he's completely incapable of knowing what to do about it. So when you when you say that, you know, the CEO of Facebook prohibits their kids from getting on social media, I think that's all reactivity. I don't think it's so calculated. I don't think they even understand really the consequences of what we're living through now. Sharon Turkle has written about this to some, and other yeah. people. Sharon Turkle, yeah. Sharon I don't know Turkle, she's a media expert at MIT. Okay. And uh, the book that I read was Along With Others, which happens to be the same as one of Stephen Batchelor's books. But it's a good title. But <laughs> uh, 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 she said that uh, through connection, new forms of isolation, through isolation, new forms of relationship, through relationship, new forms of isolation. So that on the one hand, through robots and things like that, People are experiencing different forms of connection, mm. but they lead to isolation because grandchildren in Japan are upset because their grandmother would rather spend time with her digital robot with them. Oh, because God. the digital robot is programmed to respond to her the way that she wants to respond. Oh, God. Okay. On the other hand, people make new forms of connection through social media and all kinds of things mm-hmm. can happen from that. Mm-hmm. It's allowed people who are disabled or so forth to have a connection with society they could never have before. <laughs> but at the same time, it's led to people having 5,000 friends, and so you don't have any real connection. Yeah. There's another point there as well, which, which came to mind earlier, which is that we, we have this loss of generational wealth. So as we see these shifting relationships between generations, we see the grandparents who once upon a time 
represented, you know, the matriarchal, patriarchal figure, but even, even if they were dysfunctional, that lived a human life and they had something to transmit, both through the, the, the non-spoken interaction yeah. with their nephews and their nieces and their, their grandchildren. And this sounds awful, you know, the idea that a grandparent would actually be willing to sever that, well, that commitment to their generational line to be with a fucking robot. <laughs> well, if we step back for a moment, right? if we step back for a moment and left-right thing, there's a Mark Stein, who's a Canadian journalist who writes like sandpaper, that in the book uh, We Stand Alone, I think, uh, he points out that the left has very, very little concern with intergenerational transfers. Uh, and the right is very, very concerned with intergenerational yeah. transfers. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's true. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting how, how, um, how easily um, destabilized and removed that, that kind of relationship is, that network relationship within families from more uh, evolved, more progressive, more technologically advanced societies like South Korea, mm-hmm. which is famous for having extremely dysfunctional relationships between family members. And it's interesting as well, also the way it plays out in Europe, you know, the, sort of the divide between the more utilitarian, productive countries like Germany and you know, Italy, <laughs> Croatia, Greece, which you know, rely heavily still on these generational networks, which don't just provide free support, Right and no. childcare, they provide actually a whole other way of imagining. There's an economy. Who we are, yeah. of course there is, yeah. but it also provides an, a, a different kind of sense of selfhood within the world. Sure, yeah. you know, which in England, you know, I grew up in in, in the eighties in England. It was highly alienating under Thatcher. It was a neoliberal, you know, spurt, and uh, you know, nobody was encouraged to to spend any time with their family. It was something that was being torn apart because it doesn't add to the GDP. It, that's right. And depending on how you look at it, of course, right? We could actually look at it from that perspective too. But coming to Italy, it was like, oh my God. People, and at first I experienced yeah. it though negatively. Yeah. You know, all of these oh obligations, right? Yes. <laughs> it was like being trapped. And how long is Sunday lunch? What? <laughs> I have to stay there? Physically attached to the table? What? And now after 15 years and having my own son, it's like, wow, this is, this is the good stuff. This is what we've been missing out on. It's not for no reason reason that the Chinese leadership has reinstituted Confucian values. Yeah, because they they swing the pendulum too far in the opposite direction. Exactly. With the the one-child policy and all that. Yeah. Well, the cultural revolution and the one-child Yeah, the cultural revolution uh, encouraging people to to, uh, rat on their uh, closest relatives. Yeah. Yeah. And to to uh, disavow their their brothers or fathers or whatever. So, it sounds like it sounds familiar. It sounds like something is taking place at the moment. <laughs> okay, but anyway, we end up you know we end up being being what the world uh, centrifugally you know thrown into this social order issues and all that. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, so what does the practitioner do? Uh, well, with the, pr- this? the practitioner is someone who is probably already a little bit disenchanted uh, mm-hmm. with with uh, with the social promise whether a utopian or dystopian one, and uh, a little bit disappointed with... So, which basically means it's not like you're, it's not like you're, 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 you're unable to do anything, but you've tried your best and it didn't work. Uh, I, I think that that's a problem related to the yearning part we talked about before, to the calling. Because if you haven't actually seriously tried to do something in, in the conventional sense... Mm. You have to have the experience of, of, of succeeding and failing and, and seeing what it's about and then and then having the experience 
uh, okay, th this is how it works. This is what I get. But something in me remains, you know, un, un, unsatisfied. Not just unsatisfied, but but even uh, incomplete. Uh, yeah, incomplete, uh, unaddressed. Yes, that was the word. Better, better. Yeah, something significant, something fundamental, something prior to all this business of making it, making a life for myself, and all that, which I think I've become good at in certain terms, right? But something remains unaddressed. Something is seriously missing. Right. And the, and the point that Hokai just raised, one of the metaphors uh, that I've, I've used frequently, uh, which I borrowed from uh, Stephen Batchelor, is the stammering voice. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the way I found it goes. Yeah. So Buddhism in its institutional form provides very powerful answers to questions of the spirit. But sometimes the power of the answers overwhelms the stammering voice that's asking the question. Now, I found that a very, very useful thing, but mm. Hok what Hokai said, I realize it's the way that I'm presenting that is actually incomplete because access to that stammering voice often only comes after you've experienced failure. Yeah. And so yeah. this idea that you have to actually try and go out and do something and as Samuel Beckett says, fail, fail again, fail better. Uh, and Peter Kingsley also in uh, The Dark Places of Wisdom yes. talks about finding yourself in a situation in which you can't go forward, you can't go here, you can't go here, you can't go back. You're utterly stuck. Nothing is working for you and it is there that you are forced to listen to yourself. Failure can be one of the mechanisms by which you are forced to listen to yourself in a way you've never allowed yourself to listen to. Mm -hmm. And that's where you begin to find the stammering voice, and that's where the calling and these other things can come, and commitment mm -hmm. can come from. Yeah. So that's one thing. And the other thing is that when that happens, then very quickly a practitioner will, will need to find an alternative to, social, uh, to the social contract and the social commitment. They will find. They will need to find an alternative to uh, to the to the values of success and failure. Often they will slip into re uh, rebellion. Yeah, at first. Yeah. Yeah. And so that one has to be exhausted as well. Yeah, you have to try that. <laughs> depending which, on, which is basically what happened in the sixties. Yeah. Have. Yeah. The whole generation has to do that if it's a, <laughs> if it's a collective thing. Yeah. And then it depends how healthy you are. How long is that going to last? <laughs> it will take the be the better part of your life, or is it going to be a three year stint? Uh, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, uh, that has to be exhausted. Yeah, but you have to find an alternative way of being, which isn't based on 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 this on this social trap of 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 a promise. You know that that ends up being a receding horizon. If you do this, then then yeah, you, 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 everything your life will have value. Yeah. Yeah, which transmutes and changes form for each generation, right? But it's always the same. But it's but the it's, same, it's the same of on, on the both sides of the of the of the of, of the uh, social convention because be a good boy and then you will be rewarded. Mm -hmm. Or be a bad boy and then you will have fun. Yeah. Actually both both of these are uh, false. Are false. Mm. Yeah. So both the reward and the fun part. A practitioner, you know, uh, can can only become someone who has exhausted those possibilities uh, so you, you significantly. See, if you're a good boy, you know, you find out the reward is meaningless to you. 
And if you're a bad boy, you end up in jail. <laughs> well, you don't really enjoy it. No. Right? Or, exactly. fun, or fun becomes boring. Yeah. At, at a certain point. Yeah. Empty, yeah. That, so, that point about exhaustion, I think, again, is, is, is a fascinating one. Because, you know, that's not the utilitarian outcome we're seeking, right? No. Who wants to be exhausted, it, but it's when something real starts to happen. Well, exhaustion is a key component of spiritual practice. Yeah. Your spiritual practice has to put you in a situation in which all your possibilities are exhausted. Mm. And we're not just talking about social, psychological, etc. We're no. also talking about psych- uh, spiritual... Physical everything. Yeah, so that you're even spiritually cut off from any possible way of moving forward. Okay. Uh, a friend of mine did a lot of work uh, in the AIDS crisis in the late 80s. And he had a little expression. Gates look like corners until you go through them. Gates look like corners until you go through them. And this is what people who are dying of AIDS found themselves. They're struggling. And they ended up in this corner. And life was closing in on their life was literally closing in. Oh, okay, I've got you. And then, All right. and then they would find another way, exactly the way that Hope has, of relating to life. Mm. And they realized that what was a corner mm. was actually was, a gate. It was actually yeah. a gate. Yeah. But the, the trick here is you can't go into that corner with the expectation that it's going to turn into a gate. No. As long as you hold that expectation. Some corners are just corners. Yeah, it makes me think of that famous phrase from Trump again, uh, which can sound trite, but I think it's another way of saying that, which is, you know, the loss of hope and fear. What is it? You know, that's oh, such an important... That's how I opened my book, Reflections on Silver River, mm. because there's this strange prayer in this commentary on the seven, mind training in seven points, which said, if it's better for me to be ill, I pray for the blessing of illness. If it's better for me to, to recover, I pray for the blessing of recovery. If it's better for me to die, I pray for the blessing of dying. Mm. And I left this prayer and I go, what? It didn't make any sense to Can me. I commit to that? <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and this prayer actually comes from Tony's uncle, who's the author of the 37 Practices. Mm. When I'm not, it's not clear whether he or a student of his was facing a very, very serious illness. Mm. This is prayer game. So in the three-year retreat, I was in a very, very difficult place, physically and emotionally. Went through this process where everything was stripped away. That's when that prayer started to speak to me. Mm-hmm. And then I worked. It made perfect sense. Well, I would say it made some sense. <laughs> oh, initially. <Yeah. laughs> uh, but then I was uh, many years later. I was working with a person who had terminal cancer. And one day she said, would you give me a prayer Mm. that would be helpful to me? And she wasn't practicing Buddhist or anything like that. Her psychotherapist had brought me in to work with her. And I just said, I said, okay, I'm just going to go out and all in here. And I gave her this prayer. And she just looked at me and said, are you nuts? Yeah. Yeah. And she said, no. And then two weeks later, when I saw her again, you know that prayer you mentioned last time? <laughs> I couldn't get it out of my head. Mm. So uh, I couldn't get it out of my okay. head. Okay, that's, that's something else. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. 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 And it worked on her. Mm. Yes. Uh, that's a, and, and that's a point that people, mm. people think they work on their practice, but it's actually the other way around. 
It's a funny, it's a funny concept, that one. Yeah. Then she found, if you're lucky, yeah. when she actually accepted the prayer yeah. and all the premises in the prayer, there was a shift. There was freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. it's exactly what you said. It freed them from hope and fear mm -hmm. or her. And that is the point of that prayer. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> that is tough. But that's another a great description of commitment, right? At some point, life obliges you to commit to what's actually real and taking place in you. And that's where depth and transformation can take place. In the sense of, you know, if we see life as, as a communication process, right? If you're ill, you can view that illness in a variety of ways. But one of them is it's a non-negotiable form of communication. Do you commit to what's real? Or do you play games and try and avoid it, dance around it, but get I, over it, get under it, pretend it's not there? I agree with you. But I go back to the point I made earlier. Mm. You can't approach it with that expectation. Then that's the hard part. Mm -hmm. You actually have to give up any mm -hmm. hope of getting anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that's really hard. Yeah, that's nearly impossible. Yeah, Sometimes we're lucky, but most of the time we, we have our hopes. <laughs> yeah, but you keep holding on. Yeah. But then you move on to a new yeah. metaphor. You get to surrender, right? Something like this, or... Uh, you know, having total faith or obedience to God or something like this. And there are metaphors that come up that try and... That, that try, and, that. Try, try and address it, yes, yeah. I agree. But all of those metaphors end up becoming highly problematic in yeah. other ways. Yes. Yeah. Because, I mean, people say... I, I remember talking to the head of one of the multimedia corporations that's coaching, uh, and I was complaining about the Coke brothers. Right. Okay. And he said, they're very sincere. I said, so's a, so's a, so's a terrorist. That you know. Well, that solves that problem. They're sincere. <laughs> yeah. As, as, but a terrorist is, yeah. a suicide bomber is sincere. Yeah. As, you know, as is the, you know, the jackal that's about to eat you. I mean, you know, they, they know what they're doing. And so? Yeah. They're, and they're hungry. They are. And they're going to eat. Yeah. Sincerity is, doesn't come. No. That's why... There's something, there's another quality which isn't commitment. Because, mm. you know, people people who are sincere are very, very committed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and loyal. And then this is where I go to something that Hokai and I were touching on uh, last night, and that's compassion. Where I'm, I'm going to give a somewhat different definition of compassion than usual. Mm. And I'm going to say that compassion is the ability to see and be present with suffering wherever it arises. Not necessarily to do anything about it, but to see it, which is huge, uh, because when people are stuck in their own culture, they can often not see the suffering that their own culture is Perpetuates, yeah. Perpetuates, because it's regarded as the natural order. The norm, yeah. And then to be present with it is the other component. There is such power in simply being present. You know, I mean, you know this from just what you went through with your illness. Your wife was just there. She couldn't do anything about it. Mm. Much of the time. Mm. But her just being there was everything, I imagine. It was certainly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Trying to make things, in other words, trying to make things better or, or fixing problems is, is a very separate issue yeah. from, from this, kind of, this kind of presence and, and 
it's not just a it's not a detached presence and it's not a, it's not an objective thing that we're talking about we're talking about also also being deeply moved yeah and absolutely. touched by, by what you're present with without reacting to that being moved by trying to fix it all at yeah. once yeah and i think that's that but that, that is a form of practice you know that the practice may just be the choice to, to, to let go or to stop feeding that desire to fix and to resolve i mean that's certainly something i went through in hospital and it was partly compounded by what we were talking about before that the fact they didn't really know what it was you know when i was at my lowest point you know and, and how do you not suffer in that experience yeah. the, only, the only opportunity was to and i use that word commitment because that's a story for me obviously but it's the commitment is actually just experience you know go as deeply as possible and those are two forms of not turning your back Yes, commitment and compassion. There we go. Okay, yes. it's, it's, it's just, saying it. yeah, yeah. yeah. In in yeah. both cases, you do not turn your back to what's to what's, to what's offered, to what's presented. Yeah. That's a very nice definition for practice. What's and, happening? Yeah. And if you're only on the commitment side, you run into certain problems. Yeah. And if you're only on the compassion side, you run into other yeah. problems. Yeah. No. Yeah. Don't turn your back. That's a good one. Okay. Where do you want to go from here? Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> Oh, well.